You can turn to 1 Samuel in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you, in the pew in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, you can take that as your gift, take it home with you. It's our gift for you. We're in 1 Samuel. We're looking at chapter, the end of chapter 9. We're going to begin in verse 26 of 1 Samuel. As we continue getting to know Saul and this scene of Saul and um, Samuel together. Last week where we, we left off, Saul was looking for his father's donkeys all throughout Israel. He was going from town to town, could not find it. And then he happened to come upon um, Samuel, this man of God whom he had not known, had not met before. God had revealed to Samuel that this Saul was going to be the king who he's going to anoint. And so he, we have not got to that, that part yet where he anoints him, but he's met with him and he's, he's spent the night with Samuel uh, at that, at that uh, time. So we'll begin in verse 26 of chapter 9. And we're going to go all the way through chapter 10. We'd usually stand for the reading of God's word, but I'm going to have you just remain seated. Since it's a long text, so... You can remain seated as I read. This is God's holy inspired word. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, up that I may send you on your way. And so Saul arose and both he and Samuel went out into the street. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he's passed on, stop here yourself for a while that I may make known to you the word of God. And then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the, in the territory of Benjamin and Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys as an anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? And then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread. And you shall accept, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp and tambourine, flute and lyre before them, prophesying. And then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. And then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. And when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. And when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him and the Spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish, 
Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when he saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly about the donkeys he had, that had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they saw him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. And then Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. And Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. This is God's word. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, there's a lot going on in this story, isn't there? There's a lot of different aspects, and I won't be able to hit every single part of this. If I did, it would be a two-hour sermon. But in these longer narratives of Scripture, it's almost impossible to cover everything in one sermon. But what stands out is the role that God's Word has in this whole process of God calling Saul to become king. Although the, the, the people have asked for a king in order to, to replace God, which offended God, right? He is nevertheless granting their request. In his kindness, in his mercy, he is allowing them to have a king. But this choice for a king will not be theirs. It will be God's choice. He is on the throne. God is on the throne. Even when he puts a lesser king on the throne. The king he establishes must be in submission to his ultimate rule. So the verse, the key verse that I want you to hone in on is verse 27 of chapter 9, at the beginning of the passage. When Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he's passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. So the word of God is at work here. That he is the one ruling and reigning. He is the one constraining. He is orchestrating. It's his choice as to who this king is going to be. 
And so in the choosing of Saul for king, we see that God's word does three things. It assures, it reigns, and it divides. It assures, it reigns, and divides. The word of God does those three things. So we're going to look at those three aspects of God's word this morning. So let's look first at Saul and Samuel's conversation in the beginning of this passage. He tells him to pass on, with his, and he's going to make known the word of God to him. So it's just Samuel... And it's just Saul. And this is where we see the anointing happen. The anointing is significant. This is where um, the Lord blesses. He uh, institutes, he he puts this flask of oil, pours it out on his head, kissed him. This is the moment he becomes king in this private way. It's not public, it's private. Not before the people yet. And he says in verse uh, verse 1, And you shall reign over the people of the Lord. You will save them from the hand of the surrounding enemies. And then he follows up and says, these are the signs that are going to confirm your kingships to you personally. To reassure you, Saul, that you are picked to be the king. There's going to be three signs. The first of those signs is in verse 2. He says, when you depart from me today, you'll meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you. So if you remember in chapter 9, he was looking for these donkeys. That's the whole reason he ran into, into Samuel. That he was looking for these donkeys. And so they are going to be found. That's the first sign. The second is in verses 3 and 4. There's going to be these men coming down um, over by the oak of Tabor. In verse 3, three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One carrying three young goats another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. They'll greet you, and then one of those men will give you two loaves of bread, which you'll accept from their hand. Another sign. This has echoes, as I was reading it, of Melchizedek, who meets Abraham and gives him, who's carrying bread and wine, and who blesses Abraham. Also reminiscent of of the kings coming and giving gifts to Jesus um, after he was born. And there's a final sign that Saul is going to receive, and it's in beginning in verse 6. The Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. So first, read in verse 5, these men are going to be coming up to prophesy, these prophets, this group of prophets, and they're going to have all these instruments, they're going to be playing, they're going to be prophesying, and you're going to join them, Saul. You're going to be prophesying with them. The Spirit's going to rush upon you, and you're going to become Another man, it says in verse 6. And so, we'll talk more about these signs, but as we think about why he is receiving these signs, they're important. They're confirming for him personally why he should be salt, why he should be king, why God chose him. Del Ralph Davis says, These signs should signify to Saul that he does have Yahweh's authorization for kingship and Yahweh's presence to carry out the demands of kingship. The signs are meant to assure. God's word is meant to assure us. So how does God's word assure you and, you and I in our daily lives? Remember last week we talked about the things that are happening in these stories. They are happening in a very particular way to a particular person for a very important reason. He's going to be king of Israel. But God operates in very similar ways with you and I. That his word is assuring uh, Saul, but he also assures us. 
one of the things it reminds us and assures us is that God is in control. That he controls all of nature. Think of Gideon and the fleece, right? When when he wanted to test God and, and to give him assurance, God controlled nature and allowed the dew to form on the fleece. He controls armies and the way kings think. Proverbs 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. He is in control. He controls U.S. Congresses when they can't choose a House Speaker. Right? Isn't that? He controls presidents, whether they're Democrat or Republican. God is on the throne. Now, that truth would be scary and horrible if God were not good. If God could not be trusted, or if his character was immoral or unpredictable, if God acted one way on a Sunday and then another day on a Monday. But he's none of those things. He's completely righteous and holy and perfect in all his ways. And as he assures us, he, he goes out of his way to assure his people, that he makes it a point to reassure his people. Notice in those three signs to Saul the different ways he's reassuring him. Notice in the first sign, as he finds the the donkeys are found, it reminds us that God reassures us often with our material needs. Those things that we care about, those things we have anxiety over, he reassures us over. Those bills that need to be paid. Those, and we have a, a large medical bill right now that needs to be paid after having a baby. Right, those daily things that cause you anxiety, he often works those in his will for good to reassure you that he cares for you. So Saul's donkeys were found. And number two, no, notice when he meets these men who give them these, this, these, these loaves of bread, notice the specificity of the sign. That you're going to meet these men at the oak of Tabor. And they're going to go up to Bethel. And you're going to see him at a certain time. There's very specific ways God reassures us in our daily lives. It's not just a vague principle that he reassures, but you see it in your lives. You see his hand in the details. He cares about the details. And notice in the third sign, where Saul has the spirit rush upon him, is that God cares about changing us, of transforming us, of working in our own heart and experience, of, of increasing our delight in who God is, and giving us joy when we come to worship Him on Sunday. He cares about your private life, your experience, your heart. We went through 1 John earlier, or last year, and in 1 John we read again and again that God is reassuring us. He's giving us assurance of our salvation. It was written, 1 John was written to remind believers that you may know you have eternal life. Chapter 5, verse 13. Tim Keller writes, A good husband reminds his wife, I love you and I'm here for you. And he particularly reminds her of this in difficult times, never saying, I told you I was committed to you on our wedding day. You should know I love you. Right? None of us say that, right? Especially in difficult times, you reassure the person you love with words that you love them and with actions. If you love someone, you're willing to assure them of your love. God is the same. He works the same way. God knows we need reassurances again and again and again because I forget. 
of his, I forget about his love. And why does he do this? Throughout the Bible, why does he recommit himself, reassure his people again and again? It's because he's made a covenant with his people that he will not go back on. He will not reject his people because he's made a promise to love them and to be with them. God is a good father. A good father or a good mother reassures their children that they are loved by him. Their welfare is their top concern. And that all they need to do is to trust in him. Uh, I've been in the backyard with uh, my son lately. We've been throwing baseball around. He's excited. He's about to play his first season of baseball. He's got a new glove, and, we've, and he's been wanting to throw every single day in the backyard. And so we're doing that. And it reminded me, as we were doing that, especially on these warmer days, and spring hopefully will be here not too much longer, of the days where I used to throw with my dad in the backyard. But he was often busy, and he wouldn't be able to do it. And then I would beg, beg, beg my mom to go throw baseball with me. And I don't know if many of you guys ever threw baseball with your mom uh, when you were young. But she couldn't quite sling it like my dad, right? <laughs> Nor could she catch it like him either. And I, I had to be uh, cautious not to throw it too hard. I didn't want to hurt her. She, I know she listens to these sermons, so she's going to like the story. But she... Um, what I remember, though, looking back on it, is that she did something that was out of her comfort zone for me, right? She knew it. I enjoyed it. And so she was willing to put on the baseball mitt and throw with me, um, even when I knew it's not something she loved. And she could get hurt, right? And um, where my dad was much better at it. And, um, and so looking back on those, that those are ways that you show love to your own kids. You do things that are uncomfortable. You do things that are out of the norm for you, but it's a way that God, and when we looked at these passages, these are strange examples. These are strange signs, but God is able to show us his love by showing us these signs and going out of his way to love his people. And so how does he reassure you today? How does he reassure me um, in our daily lives, in our, in our weekly rhythms? What has he given us? to reassure you and I. Well, one of those is, is the Word, right? Just opening up the Word, reading it for yourself, hearing it preached, hearing it taught, learning more and more about His Word is a way you can be reassured that God is with you and He loves you. We call these the means of grace. Another one is, is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and baptism. It's a way to commune with God and His people and to be reassured and through tangible means of his love. And also through prayer. I mean, how often, how many times have you been encouraged in your relationship with God the more time you've spent in prayer? The more time you've spent in prayer. Five minutes in prayer, I heard recently, is worth more than an eternity on social media. Right? Five minutes in prayer. That's sweet communion with God. And so in that prayer, you can literally pray, God, show me yourself today. Reassure your love for me today. Based upon those covenant promises, God, reassure your love to me. Pray that prayer that he would reassure you. And we need to be reminded that the way to reassurance may involve some risks. Sometimes God wishes to reassure us by asking us to do something. And I'm thinking particularly of Saul and the prophets. He had to meet these prophets, and he had to um, be faithful in the sense there 
uh, to prophesy with them. Right? Even though the Spirit was upon him and, and moving within him, he had to be obedient in that. And then obviously there's some debate as to if these are negative sayings or positive sayings when people are saying, you know, is he, um, who is this? What's, what's come over the son of Kish? Is he among the prophets? Some people say it's a negative, what they're, they're kind of mocking him. It's hard to make out, but, but you can see the attention is upon him now. And he had to take a risk in doing that. So what risks are you taking to find reassurance from God? Will people judge you? Well, you have to give up some comforts that you've gotten used to. I love Jim Elliott's quote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Is God so important to you that you will give up anything to keep him? Is he so important to you that you'll do that, that you'll take that risk? So think about that. How is God's word reassuring you today? Well, the second main idea here is that God's word assures us, but it also reigns over us. It reigns over all people, God's word does. And that Israelites' kings were supposed to submit to God's word. That even though they were kings, they were not above God's word, they were not above God's law, that Saul was supposed to submit himself to his word. We go back to that verse in verse 27 of chapter 9, where um, Samuel says, that I may make known to you the word of God. And in verse 8 of chapter 10, he gives him some instruction that, that, he's, that Samuel's going to come back and he's going to show you, Saul, what to do. You are to listen to Samuel. Even though you're the king now, you have to listen. I was reminded of King Josiah when he discovered the law that had been lost for a really long time in 2 Kings chapter 22. So if you'd like to flip over to 2 Kings, you can. 2 Kings chapter 20, just a few books after 1 Samuel. 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. And King Josiah is reigning during this time in chapter 22 of 2 Kings. And things had gotten really bad in Israel. The kings were not obedient. They were not reading God's word. Actually, God's word had been lost. Beginning in verse 8, we see that and Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law, is the Torah, in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants had emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Hakam the son of Shaphan and Akbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Isaiah the king's servant saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. He tore his clothes. That's what you do in the Old Testament when you're just, you're just beside yourself. That he discovered, he heard all the Torah read to him that, that had been shoved away in a corner with dust on it. And they had not been reading it. They had certainly not been keeping 
the law, the kings. Because they were under the law. The king was supposed to uphold the law and they would disobey. They would disobey. So there is our first idea that the kings were under the law. They were under God's word. We also see that there's an interesting interplay between the spirit and the word. That the spirit is always combined with the word. And I'm going to go back to that scene in verse 6 through 8 of our, of our chapter, in chapter 10, where this is the third sign for Saul. He's supposed to go to the, see these prophets, and he is going to have the Spirit come upon him. And, and he's going to become another man. Right? Saul's essentially going to become a Pentecostal preacher for, for just a few verses. You will become another man. You'll, the Spirit will rush upon you. And so it's a spiritual word, right? This is not a dead word. It's a living and active word. It's always combined with the spirit. At least it ought to be. But the spirit is always needs to be combined with the word, under the word, in obedience to the word. He, he becomes another man. He's told to do what his hand finds to do, but he's supposed to be in obedience. Del Ralph Davis says, Yahweh's spirit gives power but that power is to be exercised in obedience to Yahweh's word. The spirit and the word must never be separated. What right have we to think we can enjoy the Lord's power and presence when we deny his lordship by trampling on his word? And so there's a caution here. Right? We need to be a church that does not neglect the word. We need to be passionate. We need to be zealous. We need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to ask God through the Holy Spirit to bless us and to give us joy and delight. But we also don't, we can't do it at the neglect of the Word. We have to be obedient to His commands. But often in our Presbyterian circles, we lean more toward the Word. That we listen to the Word, we're obedient to the Word, but, but we do not open ourselves up to the Spirit as much. So, we don't want to be uh, so tied to the word that it becomes a, a deadness to us, a coldness. Where we're not, we're not, we're not seeking the Lord's face. We're not asking Him to uh, enliven our hearts and to give us joy, like Saul experienced, like in in that verse where he was with the prophets. He became another man, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him. We need the Spirit to rush upon us. We need that tethered to the word and obedient to it. And going back, as we think more about God's word reigning, it's good to know that God reigns not only over Israel at this time, but God's word ought to reign over all earthly kingdoms. That our faith is political in that sense. In the old sense of the, of the word polis, meaning city, that, I, that, the, that the word of God is over all nations. That Jesus is the king of kings. Right? You can't say anything more political than that. And when I say political, I'm not, saying, I'm not meaning partisan. I'm saying political, a new kingdom, a new city. That God reigns over all the earthly kingdoms. I read earlier in the service from Acts 17, uh, and Jason in the, in the early church, when they were being persecuted, they were... People were complaining because they had this new king. They've been hearing about this King Jesus. And they're saying, we only have one king, King Caesar. So even in the early church, that was a political statement. 
to say that you are a follower of King Jesus. And so we need to be reminded that Jesus is more than just the king of your heart, but he is to be the king of your family, of your community, and of your government. He's over it all. That our faith is not private, but it's public. I saw a really good display of public faith this week. Um, not sure if, if y'all were following on Monday Night Football where the, literally a, one of the players, 24-year-old player, almost died. He, he had cardiac arrest on the field. They had to administer uh, CPR. I, he survived, and I, I'm not sure. I think he's doing pretty good now, but at the time, you know, it, it wasn't looking good. And many people were saying, oh, we should be praying for him. We should be praying for this guy. We pray that he'll do better. But I actually was, uh, I saw online that uh, one of the uh, guys on ESPN, Dan Orlovsky, pr- actually prayed on ESPN on sports. I don't know if it's sports center, but he prayed for this young man. So how often have you turned and heard somebody praying on ESPN? And, and I know Dan Orlovsky is a, is a believer. But that was really awesome to see a Christian in a, in a, in a secular um, TV station praying. Praying for this man who, young man, who was in a critical condition. And it wasn't just that. I saw other examples on CNN, some other places of um, people turning to pastors, people turning to religious leaders. Whenever mortality is forefront in our culture, that is a, a great opportunity to deplay, display public faith, to put our faith on display. When we gather each Sunday, when we're gathered right now, we're making a political statement that we are a part of an everlasting kingdom over against every kingdom in this world that's passing away. And so as we enter into this post-Christian culture, which we are continuing to, to enter into, we need to embody faithful presence in a public square. Faithful presence. Think about how we are to do that. And so, for your own life, how are you submitting to God's word? If we're asking King Saul to submit to God's word and every king that were to come after him, how are you doing it? Because the people were required to do it as well. Do you place yourself under God's word? Do you submit to it and obey it? Are you seeking to be mastered by God's word every single day? Well, God's word assures, God's word reigns, but it also divides. It also divides. We see an interesting ending to this passage in chapter, tw- in, um, chapter 10. If you look at ch- verses 26 and 27, Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, those whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? So even at the beginning of his kingship, he's got detractors. He's got detractors. But let's skip back a few verses. And we see that Saul himself has real doubts about what he's supposed to do. Look at verse 22. So they inquired again to the Lord, is there a man still to come? Remember, they had just cast lots. Just cast lots to see who this pick was going to be from the Lord. And behold, God said, the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Saul is divided himself, isn't he? That he's doubting God's word. Have any of you ever felt that way? You, you knew God was calling you to something and you want to just throw the covers over your head and stay in bed. You don't want to get up. 
You don't want you want to hide behind the baggage. I can relate to that. I can relate to that. The life is filled with difficult things to do sometimes. And we see this. We see this this weakness in in Saul that he wasn't ready to embrace God's word quite yet for his life. But they find him, don't they? They find him, they grab him, they thrust him into the spotlight yet again. He knows his life is going to change. And he's a, he's a little bit hesitant. So he's internally divided. But we actually see div- division among the people. We see men who have valor, whose hearts have been touched. Verse 26, they follow Saul, but also some worthless fellows. It says, how can this man save us? How can this man save us? There's a king in scripture who is also divisive, that people divide over. In Matthew 10, verse 34, Jesus says, Do not think I've come to bring peace on earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. Jesus was prophesying that that he was going to be divisive, that people will will fall to one side or the other. You're either with him or against, against him. So are you for King Jesus this morning? He will not let you be neutral. Jesus will not let you be neutral about who he is and what he's come to do. We're living in very interesting times in, in this, I'll call it a post-Christian world that we're entering in. We're, we're not as far as long as Europe, but we're, we're heading that way. We are leaving the time of Christendom. Christendom's the idea of cultural Christianity, the Bible Belt. Even the Bible Belt is becoming less and less Christian in many ways. And we need to ask ourselves, how are we going to reach this world who doesn't even know Jesus anymore or know the Bible anymore? We used to have these, these, uh, these dots that we could just connect for people, right? Sin, salvation, Jesus, resurrection. And people don't have those dots anymore. We can't expect people to come into our churches uh, knowing all the Sunday school answers. And so how do we reach? We need to be thinking, how do we reach the people who don't even have an understanding of what, they, of what kind of salvation is offered in the Bible? And we, but we need to press upon them the need for, you need to know who King Jesus is because he will not hold his peace in the end of the day. If we read in verse 7 that Paul, Samuel, that Saul held his peace, about these men. They despised him. They brought him no present, but he held his peace. Jesus held his peace, didn't he, when he died? That he was led to the, and to be slaughtered like a lamb for, for you and I, for all who would trust in him, to, to save us. But when he returns, he won't hold his peace. He will destroy all those not allied with him. Whose side? Are you on? So even though Saul had some um, difficulty, even though he was, he's this complex figure, right? He, he failed and he will, he will fail, as we will see. But the office of kingship demanded loyalty to him because it ultimately points to King Jesus, the perfect king. And I'm going to finish just by reading Psalm chapter 2. Just this kingship psalm fulfilled in Christ. And it, says, and it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, 
Let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. The nations, right, rejecting God, rejecting his authority. But in verse 6, he says, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And if you skip further along in, in that psalm, you, Jesus, the Messiah, shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. He is going to take vengeance on his enemies, but blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Now is the time for us to be faithful in the public sphere and to proclaim this king who is just, who is wise, who is powerful, and who's gracious. He's gracious. One day, his grace will be removed as his wrath is poured out, but now is the time to keep, to keep preaching the gospel, for his grace is still with us. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, this story of Saul, this complex, uh, imperfect first king of Israel. He points us forward to the king we, we all need, this king of grace and mercy, perfection and righteousness. That is the hope of this lost world. So, Father, would you turn our eyes upon Christ, encourage us as we await the coming, the return of our King, who will save us to the uttermost. In Jesus' name we pray.